I appreciate you all uh, tolerating my music. <laughs> it's a kind of combination of you know R and B, country, and um, everything else. I like you know I'm from Nashville, so I bring my music with me. So anyway, so I hope you all enjoyed that. Anyway, so uh, any co any comments, any questions, anything so far? I mean, it's been kind of wide ranging, and I've just been babbling on and on and on. Are we still on the same right on the same track and everything everything's okay so far good fine um so um are there any lawyers here i know the judge was but i'm sorry excuse me attorney so um so i'm gonna do some legal talk okay so uh so if i'm if i get off off the rail here just break, uh, stop you know signal me um so one of the things that I, I have a big memory of um, when I first started doing national trainings for IACP was 80, I'm really old, 87, 88. And we were traveling and talking to chiefs about how to write policies to just deal with domestic violence. Because in the, up until 88, 89, 87, most police departments didn't have a specific policy on domestic violence. They had a specific policy on, you know, assault or murder, but not domestic violence. So we were training chiefs how to write policies on domestic violence. And, you know, we try to convince them, you know, your officers need specific directions on policy on what to do. And I got a lot of resistance. And you know, I, you know, I, I, I said, well, well, let me just give you an example of what happens when you don't do this right. And I brought up um, oh, Tennessee versus Garner. Is that, does that sound familiar? Yeah. yeah. So when I started in Nashville in 77, that's when Garner occurred. And as you remember in your academy classes, the Memphis police arrived on home burglary. And Garner, the teenager, had broken into a house and he was running from the back door to a fence. And one of the officers made the corner, saw him, and told him to stop, and he didn't. And he shot him in the back, killed him uh, for breaking in the house. Well, family sued for illegal search and seizure, excessive search and seizure, and it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, the Supreme Court said to Memphis, help us understand why you shot a juvenile running away from the police with a person in his hand. And Memphis police said, we shot him because we can. Yeah, what they said. By the way, most police departments in the country allow police to shoot fleeing felons. So they categorize him as fleeing felon. No consideration of he's going to cause trouble, or, you know, other than that he was just a thief. So the Supreme Court said, well, that's over with. No more of that. That changed. No cops cannot shoot fleeing felons anymore. Unless they present a you know potential bodily injury or death to you or a citizen, basically that's and that law is stuck. But you know we've had problems with police around the country in some cases where they just couldn't quite understand that. Uh, so, but up until that time, you know, they said no more. And here's something else that the Supreme Court said to, to Memphis: We don't seem to see anywhere in your case that you have a procedure on using deadly force. 
And uh, Memphis said, ah, we don't have a policy on that. Uh, state law is our policy. And the Memphis, I mean, the Supreme Court said, not really. The state law is a state law, but your policy is your mission, it's your direction, it's your assignment, it's your priority. It is your voice to the public about really particular individual events and things you do, like high speed pursuit or sex assault or anything else that's really critical. And you'll see it in the policies. You know, the ABC Sheriff's Department believes that this crime is important, therefore, we have a zero tolerance. Da, 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 da. That's the voice of the public. That didn't exist in the 80s on domestic violence. So we fought hard. But when we started bringing up lawsuits, the chiefs, they started listening. We talked about Baker versus New York. Baker was a police officer, NYPD. He was under protective order. His wife separated. He was stalking her. She ran into a courthouse uh, in Brooklyn and said, help, help, I need your help. I'm being stalked. My husband, he's a cop. The court clerk, and she ran to the clerk's office in the courthouse. The clerk said, ma'am, please wait in the lobby. We'll get some, we'll call a cop for you. She said, no, you don't understand. He is a cop. They said, wait in the lobby. She walked in the lobby. He shot, killed her. And by the way, he had already violated the order. She, the cops came to his house and she said, I've got an order. He's here. And they told her, we don't lock up our own officers. So they didn't arrest. I mean, you hear these, you think, well, they wonder why they got sued. But the cases were laid down. This is a 60s case. Uh, Watson versus Kansas City, another police officer case. They didn't arrest him. He stalked her. He stabbed her. He raped her. He tried to kill her. He killed himself. In the Watson case, the same thing. They didn't enforce the law. So there's a long history. So when you started talking about these cases with the chiefs, they started talking about policies. But as we moved on through the 80s or the 90s, we still had some resistance, and we talked to the chiefs about Tracy Thurman, you know, the Thurman case. Some of y'all have been playing this business for a while, know Tracy Thurman, young woman in Torrington, Connecticut, uh, had a child in common with her husband, Buck, Buck wore a buck knife on his belt. He was dangerous. Everybody in town knew Buck was a dangerous man. You know, almost like a country song, you know. And uh, she, yeah, they separated. She called Torrington again and again and again. It's about a 30 officer department. It was then. And they told her, if we can't chase him all over town, we'll catch him. We'll get him one day. You know, they just sort of blew her off. And he came to the house one day, was screaming at her and said, bring him out here. Bring our kid out. And she called Torrington. Said, please get out of quick. He's here. I've got a restraining order on him. They said, oh, he's on the way. So they sent a single officer that gave the call. He told the dispatcher, I'll get there, but I need to go to the bathroom first. So he stopped at the police station. It took him 45 minutes to get to the call. Once he got on the call, she had come out of the house because he said, I'm coming in. Buck was knocked to the ground, took her son, hold her son. He's kicking her in the head. He snaps her neck. He stabbed her multiple times with his knife. That's when the officer arrives at the scene. The officer's so confused, he grabs a bystander, a neighbor, is trying to arrest the neighbor. I don't know what this man was thinking. The neighbor said, what are you doing? That's, the killer is climbing on top of the woman in the ambulance. That's a clue. So he grabs Buck, and he later testified in court. He said, I arrested him because he was interfering with paramedics. That's what he said. By the way, she lived through this and she sued. And Burton Weinstein's her lawyer. I've met him a couple of times. And 
He told me about the state, and he said it was it was like major watershed law enforcement lawsuit. And he said, when I got in court, we were able to get Tracy on the stand, but she has permanent paralysis on the left side of her body, so she can only talk out of the right. Imagine that was an issue. So she's testifying, and she said she says to the court, she said, I called them at least fifty times, and they just didn't help me. And the police chief in rebuttal said. No, I don't think it was 50. I think it was more like 25 times. Yeah. So she got $2.3 million. This was in the early, early 80s. All she got out of that was $6,000 cash. Catastrophic medical and lawyer. So that was a big part was just she had no insurance. Poor people had insurance. You know, and that's the thing about poor people too. Help poor people don't get married anymore. Y'all notice that. You can't afford a divorce. Think about that. So your divorce filing is a protective order sometimes, right? So in Tracy's case, Weinstein said I, there, there was a lot of money in the Hades. Nobody had seen a settlement like this before. So the insurance carrier was in the courtroom when the ruling came back and they told the mayor of Torrington, yeah, we agree with them, we agree with the court. That's why we're canceling your insurance policy for the whole city. And then Weinstein went to the courthouse when the insurance company failed to pay the 2.3, and he went to the, the, the regular the clerk of deeds and had every police officer's home deed to their home. He collected them all and put them back to the court to get his money. Yeah, yeah. And the insurance company said, time out, we'll pay this, and they paid the 2.3 million. That got everybody's attention. So now, you know, modern policing considers how it happens, how we get ourselves in lawsuits. Um, and by the way, I'm not asking anything in particular any different than just being a good police department, being a good cop. But when you raise the level of your standards of your agency, you lower possibilities of lawsuit. Always happens. Uh, it just makes perfect sense. Uh, professional standards. So, what lawyers are looking for when they sue you is performance, performance, performance. What was your performance like? That's what they're looking for. And you can't sue judges, and you generally can't sue prosecutors. But there's exceptions. The uh, Durham, North Carolina prosecutor, one of the last big lawsuits I saw against the prosecutor, y'all probably remember the case. It was the false arrest in the lacrosse case, the campus case, where they were. It was supposed to be a gang rape. Y'all remember that one? Well, this prosecutor actually fabricated evidence. It was a mess of a case. And he lost his law license, he was sued. But generally, you can't sue the prosecutor. But again, again, as long as we're doing what anybody should do in a proper way, we're okay. And then, too, I, I always believe that smart people uh, learn from their mistakes. But intelligent people learn from other people's mistakes. So I can be and I, it sounds kind of hard, you know, when you say, look down the road at Roanoke and tell me about that case. Look down at Chesapeake, how'd they get sued? You know, look down at Bristol. What how'd they get themselves in this trouble? That's not unfair. That's just being smart, you know. Or we, they get they were sued in a high speed pursuit case. How did it happen? They had seven cars in the chase. 
sergeants weren't monitoring the flow of traffic. They weren't looking at the speed. You know, they had an officer who was throwing people out. They were cutting the ankles to their feet. They thrown them in the back of the car. They died of the positional asphyxiation. Y'all know this. Y'all know the story, right? So you have to look at these cases and say, where are we? So I'm going to show you a couple of these cases. And again, stop doing anything that you wouldn't normally do to be a good manager, a good leader, a good officer, a good sergeant. But the cases you start off like this, they'll, they'll put you on the stand. Let me, let me back up a little further. Because there are, there are law firms that do nothing but sue police. Chicago's got one of the biggest ones because they sued Chicago so many times. We're talking in the hundreds of millions of dollars in lawsuits. And what they'll do, they'll take the incident that there's a claim on. Then they'll bring in their experts. And what their experts will do is they'll take the incident and sit it down and look at it and they'll say, where do we go to prove that this is subperformance? So they'll go down the road to Springfield and pull their policy if it's a Chicago case. They'll look at the way police do it in other jurisdictions, and then they'll start their case. What they'll show is we've got, well, we're going to show you an example of good policing. We're going to show you an example of bad policing. That's how they do it. So um, what they'll do is they'll put the chief on the stand, and this is how they'll start off. They'll say, chief, isn't it true? Um, that the reason that we're here is because of your negligence and leadership, because if it hadn't been for your officers training and administration and policy that my client would be alive today, and you chief are the proximate cause of the death of my client. This is strong stuff. Oh no, we didn't do that. Okay, then they'll start pulling your department apart. And I'll show you how that how that plays out. But the first thing they'll do is they'll prove to the court that you, the police department, and the victim are in a special relationship. Now, there's two kinds of relationships with the public in law enforcement. One is general in nature, and you're usually protected from lawsuit because we don't owe a duty to a specific citizen of care. We owe a duty to the community for care. That's, that's called the public duty doctrine. It's solid across all states. But what will happen is then somebody will reach out to police and say, my name is Mary, I'm a stalk, I need your help. And we don't protect Mary. The moment Mary reached out to law enforcement with a specific risk of harm, then the federal and state courts, and they'll sue you in both. You know, federal civil rights, State is tort or negligence. That's money. That's punitive. That's compensatory. You get slapped both in federal and state, but the claim in state usually is my client has suffered because of your negligence, negligent retention of a bad employee, negligence in your performance. That's the state work. The federal is you denied Mark my client equal protections under the law. Now, okay, so far. So Molly's in the parking lot. Molly gets mugged, and the police come to take Molly's report, and they say, Molly, damn, you're the parking lot of the police academy. He says, yeah, the building's full of cops. And she says, really? I'm going to sue them. They didn't protect me, so she'll sue you. We'll get in court, and the judge will say to Molly, did you call the officers and let them know you're being mugged? Did somebody? No, I didn't. The judge is going to say, Molly, we're back to you in a general. They, they have to protect the public at large, but not you specifically. 
unless they know. So let's say Molly walks over the door and says, help, help, I'm about to be mugged. And we say, Molly, can you give us about 30, 40 minutes? <laughs> and now we got a problem. That, because that, what happens is, Molly now has reached out to us. Now she's connected to us. We have a duty, we have a sworn duty, right? And if there's damages, and if you're the proximate cause, those are the poor ones that, that they'll set you in. And all of a sudden, the judge will put you on the stand and they'll put a microscope over the top of you and they'll say, what did you know? When did you know it? And what did you do about it? It's that way. And this is hard ball too, buddy. They're, they, they don't give any, any room here. They just, they, it's, it is absolute scorch field when it comes to lawsuits. I cannot tell you what I've seen in court. It's just amazing what they'll do to a police department and an officer in court. And once they realize it's a special relationship, then their case starts. I'll, I'll walk you through some of these cases. Federal way in South Seattle, South, South Seattle. She had a protectable, excuse me, that's this is the Watson case. Watson case, this is the officer case. They did arrest him. He chased her into a precinct. She ran in. Kansas City police officer said, help, your officer's chasing me. The sergeant said, who? He said, your officer, I'm married to him. He's stalking me. And the sergeant said, Oh, there he is. And he ordered this guy over and said, you know, come on, let me talk to you. So when the officer walks over to the sergeant and who else will stop stalking his wife into the police precinct, he puts his arms around him and says, okay, I'll hold him while you run. Right. None of you all would do it. None of you would do it. You'd ever dream of doing it. I know that. So she ran with her kids and got home. And when she got home, he jumped behind a tree, a bush, abducted her, took her in the house, he stabbed her. Uh, he raped her. He got up to get another knife, stabbed her again. She jumped to a plate glass window and made her saw it before the police. He fled and killed himself. And when they looked at Kansas City, they found out that Kansas City had all kinds of problems, including they weren't really arresting a lot of people on domestics. They were locked up for stealing stuff, not domestic. So they decided that, you know, not only did, were they negligent in holding their own officer accountable, but, you know, they weren't really trained in officers to understand the seriousness of domestic violence. Uh, so the legislative intent comes into play. This is what you'll hear sometimes. Do you understand what the intent of the law is? The intent of the law is to protect victims and hold offenders accountable. That's a pretty good start. And then they'll say, so if you understand that, why was my client killed? How did this happen? If you know that you're supposed to protect victims, tell me how you let this happen when she called you and said, He's violating the protective order. Please get out of here right away. And you have to answer the question. If you can't, you're in trouble. So let me show you how it happens. So this is a real case. This is a friend of mine, Bernetta Cockerham. She and I are actually doing some training together now. She's former law enforcement and she lives in North Carolina. And you know, she's separated from her husband. He's dangerous. So she gets a protective order. And she lives across the street from the Jonesville, North Carolina Police Department. And um, she breaks into the house. She calls the police. And while she's standing there with, with the police, the front guard, he drives by with within feet of her. And she said, well, hell, there he is right there. They pull him over, and they don't arrest him. So uh, she sues. Jones will push 
And not only did you sue the police department, the way she did it was the most novel thing I've seen in a long time. And it's being paid close attention by litigators now. Because what she did, she not only sued, she contacted the documentary film company, Charlotte, said, I want you to film me as though I'm testifying about what happened to me because the police didn't arrest my husband. And I want to put it on the internet so everybody can see what happened. She had every right to do that, and she did it. Her lawyer deposed the officers who didn't arrest. They put the video deposition. After I took up the restraining order on Richard, he would just taunt me. I was being stalked. He would call and make threats. He would threaten family members. Just unimaginable stuff he would do. Me and the kids just loving him. And Candace. We were looking at colleges. She was six months away from graduating. So I felt safe at home because the police department was so close to me. I could practically wait to the secretary sitting at her desk. I believed in law enforcement. I believed in that restraining order. Somehow he broke into the house, but he left. This time I was seeing Richard across the street and digging. They were like graves, like a fresh dog grave. I would call the police. And by the time police would, would roll and drill, he would be gone. He called me and into what detail told me. I am going to put you and your children in those groups. It was never a break. Never a break. From July to November. That's a bomb scaring pop. I hand him again. The arrest point. While we're standing there, he passes by. And I tell him, there he is. Go get him. Lieutenant Gwen looked at me and told me, 
Here we say that God outlines you. We will like him with him. I never thought for a second that he was not arrested. After all the spirit that I've been carrying, I take a deep breath and I let loose. The tension was gone. The tension of walking back from the kitchen to the door. This window to that window. Every time we hear a branch fall on you, jumping, that's was gone. It was a mountain of relief. I pushed the door off. We came behind the door in the staircase and he stabbed me in my head. And the knife broke off in my head. I could feel it cracking. And then he picked up glass. But I put my hands up in defense. And he just was cutting through the And then he just began to choke me. The blood just rushed me. And that's the last thing I remember from Kenny. It seemed like Candace was telling me to get up. But I never did see him. When I got up, I was trying to, to get the door handles and I couldn't because I didn't have any fingers in the door and things. So I took my wrist and I'm the bolt. And I just shot him straight to the police department. I can feel the warmth of the blood just running out of me. I can hear the whistles of my skin blowing. I just kept running. And I got to the police station. And it just plumped. They had them set up. They're at the hospital in the room. And I couldn't yell, and I couldn't scream, I couldn't. Oh, I get the witch's folder. I can't muster the thought of thinking that I could do all that I could have done. I can't get past the anger. I guess the officers would have done what they said to her to do. She was too weak. No doubt. In my mind. I swear people say you don't know what a person's going to do. And script it out for someone new. I jumped up and down the day before. No, no way to finish cleaning. And it passed away. So after he killed his daughter and, and almost killed Fernetta, he doused himself with kerosene. And he, he burned himself alive. So this is a pretty hardcore alcohol here. And um, 
you know, this is pretty powerful uh, testimony, but the, the other part of this was the video depositions going to get deposed today, lawsuit, they videotaped. And the lawyers get a copy of that. So they took their copies and they put it on the internet. This is the officer who did not arrest him. Uh, this is what he said. So the lawyers asked him, why didn't you arrest him? This Prior to the chain of positive ID. What is the best way to obtain a positive ID? And then to look at the driver's license and if you had looked at the driver's license and seen Mr. Richard Allen's name and If I had stopped him there, uh, if I could have located him, it's a big if. If I could have located him and stopped him there, we're going to have to prove that he's not just driving down a public road. You know, it's a free country, and he, he can drive down a public road if he wants. Yeah, so it's pretty bad. He's basically trying to explain why he didn't arrest somebody who the petitioner in front of him said, that is the person who's violating the order. That is my husband. That is the person you should arrest. North Carolina law was fairly clear, but there's a new law now based on this case about absolutely no discretion, arresting on violation. But he's defending this guy's right to drive down the street. So when the lawyers saw that in the city, they saw, oh my gosh, they settled this case. So this is where we are. It's not enough. It's not too much. It's not enough. This happened in Bernadette's case. But but generally, when police are sued, it is too much. It's too much pursuit, too much restraint. But here we go. We got these field of, of, of cases where they sued for not doing enough. And um, when you look carefully at officers' responsibility, you are responsible. But as I said, we're not responsible for individually for people unless you get a Bernetta case. There he is. He's done it. By the way, the officer said he needed more. I know exactly what that means. He didn't believe her. He didn't believe her. And the, the real problem with this is if you've got a victim that's got a protective order, that means they went before a judge. That means that state judge said, I believe you. I'm going to bestow special care on you by giving you a protective order. And the police department is responsible for protecting you. So this was not just an ordinary This is a person who already passed the, the the credibility test. Judges don't hand these things out unless they are conventioned equal. So that was what was going on with Bernetta. But she was in a special relationship with him because the law said you got to enforce the order. So say out now that there's a statutory duty please. And let me let me say this about the law. And I think most of you get it. You open up the, the Virginia code book on any criminal case. Now I've read your code book over the years many times. You don't, you don't want the code book on the definition of burglary. It defines it, but it does not say, therefore, when you investigate a burglary case, you will do A, B, C, D, and E. The, the lawyer, the, the legislator didn't need to tell you how to do that because we didn't have a problem with that. But when they wrote your domestic violence laws in Virginia, they put mandates in it. 
And the reason the mandates are in the law because we weren't doing it right. So they actually, the legislators all over the country, actually, they wrote policy into law. Because it says you will transport, you will offer assistance, you will do this. No other criminal codes that way, which means when they judge us, they'll ask us, did you offer transportation? Did you assist her with a victim's rights form? And we say, no, we're going, oh, you have a problem. You have violated the statutory provision on the law, right? So you can't, you know, you can't come in and say you're not liable because you are. And then here's some of the other ways they get us. When you created or assumed a custodial relationship with a person. If they're in the inferior patrol car, if you've got them in handcuffs, and something happens to them, that's us. We're responsible. That's why we don't hog tie prisoners anymore. I mean, probably not the right term to put, but we don't, y'all want to talk about it, right? You're cuffing their ankles to the wrist, you lay in the back seat, they vomit, they strangle on, on vomit, positional asphyxiation, big lawsuits. We've paid some of those over the years. Uh, you know, you're driving down the road, but not belted. Somebody hits your patrol car. They get rattled around them. They get a head injury. Boom, that's us. We're responsible. They get injuries. And they're not explained. That's a problem. That has been a problem in the past. Um, we're aware of a specific risk of harm. This is Burnett's case. Help, help. I mean, stop. And then we place somebody in a position of danger. And they sort of did that, too, because we heard what they said. They promised her we will arrest him. That was a big one. Because when we start promising citizens something and we don't deliver, they have an expectations of protection. And that's what they'll tell the court. They told me he was under arrest. But actually, when you think about it, this was one of the reasons Vine was created. The Vine program came out of Jefferson County, Kentucky, Louisville. Mary Byron, boyfriend was in jail. They released him and they didn't notify her. He killed them. Family members went to a computer engineer a uh, refugee from Vietnam he said, can we do something to help police early warn and notify victims? They created the violence system. It's used worldwide now, by because it works. It's an early warning system that says, Bill's getting out of jail, Bill's getting out of jail, beware, beware, beware. So if you look back, you see these homicide cases, it generates something, right? And that's what it did in North Carolina. That's what it did in, in, in uh, Kentucky. But when we place somebody in a position of danger, uh, Wallace versus LAPD, not a domestic case, um, Mrs. Wallace witnessed a murder. Um, it was a gang murder. She told LAPD, I saw it. Okay, I'll testify. LAPD didn't tell her the suspect was a notorious killer and it had killed a lot of people. They, they didn't tell anything about the suspect. If they had, the family member said she would have never agreed to testify. So they let that out. The gang member killed her. They sued the LAPD. They proved their case. You should have let her know. This is why a lot of states uh, require police to tell victims when we arrest him, he can bound bond out of jail. He's open to bail. So prepare yourself for when he gets out of jail. Notifying people about what's happening next. Only committed ourselves to protection of a person. That's a protective order. We are connected to the, by the way, there's a case out of Florida, Simpson versus Miami. Miami police get a call. Their guy violated a protective order. He's running away from the scene. Miami officers run right into him and catch him running away from the scene. They arrest him. They, they were going to charge him with violating the order. They're taking him down to the booking room, and the offender talks the officer into letting him go. He promises he won't do it again. 
Again, and you hear this, you go, what in God's name were they thinking? He went right back to the house and he killed her. In the, in the Simpson case, the Florida Supreme Court said the very moment that the judge signed the injunction for relief for, for, for Ms. Simpson, the very moment that happened, the Miami Police Department and Ms. Simpson were automatically joined into a special relationship. Which means that when a citizen in your jurisdiction gets a protective order, you and your agency are connected to them automatically. If the order is not enforced, then they look at you and say, what happened here? Uh, White versus Chicago. Violation of protective order, two Chicago police officers pull up in front of the house, middle of the winter, they never get out of the car. They sit there a minute, let the clock run, she's inside with the suspect. Situation. This, the officers checked with the dispatcher. We can't find the suspect. He's gone. They just lied. They pulled away. As they're pulling away, he's killing her inside the house. So, again, it's amazing when you read these cases to go, well, wonder they found themselves in this position. So, here's the, these are the ways that it happens. And then qualified immunity. There's a lot of talk about qualified immunity. You know, it's in the, it's in the George Floyd Act that they're trying to pass through Congress right now, trying to do away with it. And it protects police, but it doesn't protect police in these kind of cases. The difference here is in lawsuits in general, and this one is that the statute says, right, there's a provision. This is part of the constitutional rights of a victim that you do certain things for. Them. So you can't hide behind, police departments have never been able to hide behind qualified immunity in these cases. And then you know, get fed on way. You know, they served the order on the guy, but he didn't speak English. He spoke Korean. His wife was the petitioner. They were on the scene all together, and the officer said, "We'll let her serve her own order." Yeah, they didn't look for a Korean-speaking uh, uh, advocate, and they and they didn't order him off the promise of property. They pulled away and killed him. Again, you can see these cases how they roll out. So. The, the way they do it, this is their strategy. Litigators look at your agency like a four-engine airplane flying through the air. They go after the engines on your plane, knock you down, crash your plane, crash your apartment, get your money. The first engine, they fire away is your policy. If you don't have policy, you're in trouble. This is what happened with Memphis and Garner, basically. And if you have policy, is it updated? You have to update the policy regularly. You have to do it because the laws change almost every year. They do it Virginia. I've watched the laws change for the last 25 years. Constantly changing, modifying. They have to reflect that your policy. And also administration. That's your sergeant. That's the leaders making sure that you're doing the work in the field. That's administering the policy in the field. They're not doing that. They're not managing your agency. They got you there. The third engine, you're training. You're not training with and look, this is not a guarantee, but this helps. When you go to training like this, this is a little bit of a buffer. So yeah, there was a hit in Tennessee, it came up, they trained. It's in your file, it's in your it's in your it's in the history file now, right? It helps, right? Training's perishable. That's why you're on the gun range once a year. Also, the last one here is your discipline. If you know an officer's not doing what they're supposed to do, and you don't immediately correct it, then that engine's on fire and they crash your plane and they scoop up all your money. So that's the strategy then. One of our dispatchers lost the case here. Five people shot in the domestic. Dispatcher wasn't trained. That was our problem. And the training is not adequate. You look at the number of hours officers are trained in, 13 on average for DV. 
six on sex assault, you spend a third of your or half your career working these cases. Why aren't we training you? And on and on and on. So these are, you know, kind of a summary. They to take proper actions, they to probably force a court order, they to respond at all, providing information, arresting someone out, probable cause, differential treatment. Sued because of the rape kits not being tested and the rape that's going on right by the women. So, this is where we misunderstand rape. Let me show you how this works and, and then we'll, I will finish with this question. So, I'm training with a friend of mine from Phoenix and sex crimes investigator, Sergeant. Jim Markey is his name. And I don't know how many rape Jim's work. Phoenix is a serious city anyway. So Jim says, I'm in my office working a case, and the friend of mine who works in the background investigation unit, who's a polygraph examiner for the Phoenix Police Department, comes in my office. And he said, Jim, I need you to help me. I've got something here I need you to look at. And he, Jim said, what, Where are you working? He said, I'm doing backgrounds on candidates for the police department. He said, okay, so what the guy did is he filmed a pretest interview with a potential advocate for Phoenix police. But what Phoenix is doing, they don't want to get sued because of inadequate screening of police candidates. You can be sued for this. Um, there's 16 questions on our recruit application now about domestic sexual violence. This detective did something really unusual. He puts it in his polygraph thing. And he asked this young man who's trying to get a job as a Phoenix police officer about his past. And this is why Jim ended up with an active criminal case. So these things, actively ministry, training, policy, all that is so critical. And here's where it happens when you see something like this. You're not going to believe what you're about to hear. This is not made up here. This actually happened. Been involved in or even accused of a sexual assault in yeah, what? Well, my mom, she passed out sexually. Look, I don't know And she passed out from alcohol. It's Did she make it either make any complaint or anything? And you did it again to a different girl in at age 24. And uh, where were the incidents occurring in Connecticut? Connecticut. So the first one was in New Hampshire. The first one was in New Hampshire. Second one was 24 was not. And neither have made any complaint or said anything to you or anything. 
Have anything else with sexual assault and date rape? Even being accused. Okay, I'm accused. Where was that? And what happened? It's the same thing as I was in my drink and mom she passed out. Such a <laughs> uh, in 2005, I drove a girl on a date. She had some marijuana for personal use. About age 19, I set a bush on fire for fun in Boston. About age 19, uh, at New Hampshire University, I set a, a piece of mail that was hanging from a mailbox on fire. I did not think it through. The fire ignited about 10 other mailboxes full of uh, mail. This is why I keep my own penny. I guess write some stupid stuff. Um, about 30 times while my license was suspended for DUI, I drove to work. About age 18, I took about five street signs. About age 18, I stole some books from a book that would cost about $300. I took candy as a kid. Just when I was drunk. Was that I was a police officer. At age 19, I solicited a prostitute Montreal, Canada. I paid her $50 for verbal sex. A couple of times, about seven years ago, I urinated in more parking lots. Uh, about age 22, I was with a girl who passed out from alcohol. I had sex with her while she was passed out. I did this to another girl when I was 24. The first time was in New Hampshire, the second time was in Argo. Neither woman made a complaint. Again, about age 22 in Connecticut, I had sex with a girl who passed out. She did not file a complaint. Uh, at age 25 in San Francisco, I received oral sex at the end of the massage. I paid seven. Have you ever been in? So, I know. First saw this. I said, Jim, this is not real. He said, No, this is real. He said, We well, we started an investigation. We went back to where this man said he'd gone to college. We actually found he said an arson report from where it said the mailbox came fire, but there was no other report because you heard what he said. They passed out. I had sex with them. These women obviously didn't know they'd been raped. This is not unusual. This is the, this is David Lisak's undetected rapist. That's what you're looking at. But here's the other thing too. And the reason I bring this up is that you know we're worried about the offender in front of us. We have to worry about the offenders trying to get in our ranks. This, you have to be careful with this. We can't just hire anybody. Why do you think he wants to be a police officer? Well, he impersonated with the bomb. This is a predator. This is a pure, absolute, one hundred percent predator. This is a serial rapist. He's looking for targets. This is why the Boy Scouts are bankrupt today. Y'all been watching this story? The Boy Scouts, my God, the Boy Scouts are bankrupt because they watch these scoutmasters raping these kids. This is what happened in the Sandusky of Pennsylvania. This is what happened with Nasser. I think the settlement was, I think they want $280 million, I think, from the Nasser, the, the Olympians, saw the young women testifying before Congress. Simone Biles, our greatest ever gymnast in the world, testifying before Congress about how she was raped and nobody listened to her. I mean, it, so it's it's a complete misunderstanding of who these predators are. But this police department, Phoenix, said, no, we're not following this. So they asked the questions. What if they didn't ask the questions? 
They may have hired this guy, young, healthy, you know, may have been a candidate, but he'd have gotten in ranks and just wreaked havoc inside this police department. So there's a lot of things going on here. Obviously, managing police departments, making sure people don't get into ranks who do this, you know, understanding sex assault, what it really is, um, and, you know, making them all keep his promise. That's basically what it is. That's keeps us out of trouble. That's what supervisors do as well. So that's, you know, a quick, I know I put a lot of stuff in a short period of time, but that's it. I mean, I, 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 I hope that I gave you some food for thought. Uh, Josephine will be sending you out the PowerPoint on this. Uh, I thank you all for coming today. I know you got a lot going on and I've been to a thousand trainings, you know, where you go and they order you to go with these trainings. You think, damn, you know, just stick me in the eye with a sharp stick now and get it over with. No, I mean, no, I've been to a lot of, you know, when you're a police officer, you go to a lot of training and you think, good God, I don't need to be here for this, but they doing this to me. I didn't want you to feel that way. I hope you didn't. I hope you had a chance to break to network with people. And, and, you know, if you're not involved in the, the Loudoun County, you know, dark program and, and with Josephine and her folks, check in with them. You know, they're always looking for, put it behind me, recruiting for you. <laughs> they're always looking for people to get involved in what they're doing. Uh, and I know your job is hard and it's not easy and dangerous and all that. So I, I appreciate you and appreciate what you're doing. And you got my contact information. And if you need me after today, just drop me a line. I mean, I, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, I, I'll, I'll answer you. I'll send you what you need. And, and I hope you're safe and sound and have a great holiday and Christmas and New Year and Hanukkah and everything else. So thank you all for coming today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you got a question? Oh, never mind. Sorry. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, that happened more than you.